There are many ways people listen to vision, including on smart speakers. Just tell your smart speakers to play Vision Christian Radio. Alexa, play Vision Christian Radio. Vision. Yep, it really is that easy. You can also say, play V180 Radio for our music channel. It's just another way that Vision is helping you look to God daily. Coming up today on The Story. I was kind of leading a double life because on one side of it, I was a model medical student, right? I was studying hard. I was doing well. The nurses and doctors that were my superiors loved me as a student. I was the head of the activities club for the campus, yet I had this dark life that I was living that most people didn't know about. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Sherry Hall was born in the United States during the civil rights era of the 1960s. She describes herself at the time as being illegitimate, poor and biracial. Not surprisingly, she grew up confused about her identity and searching for unconditional love. Sherry is the author of the book Perfect Love, One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith, a musical memoir. Well, that's a lot to unpack in that title there, as there's a lot to unpack in Sherry's life journey. So let's get right to it. Here's Sherry Hall having a chat with Eric Scatterbone. Welcome to the program, Sherry Hall. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you with us. And where are you joining us from today? I am in the beautiful sunshine coast of Queensland, Australia, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous, bright blue day out there. And that's a long ways from where you were born, I believe, in Buffalo, New York. Do I have that right? You have that right, and I couldn't be farther. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot colder in that neck of the woods over there. So let's go back to your childhood. You were born in a tumultuous time, the 1960s in the United States, when civil rights and everything, Martin Luther King was all happening. Take us back to that time that you were born into. Uh, something that I know, a little secret here, the number one song on the Billboard 100 in 1964 was by Peter and Gordon, and the title was A World Without Love. That's the world that I entered into. Now, I'm not saying that there was not love between my mother and my father at that time, but it was a period of incredible strife in America, Mm -hmm. as many people know, back in the 1960s and early 1970s. So, yeah, I was born into that life. My mother was a Caucasian female, and my father was an African-American and Native American man. They did not get married, but they fell passionately in love. Uh, My mother went from being a beauty school graduate and a high school cheerleading captain to being the mother of two little brown skinned girls with nappy curly hair. (laughs) And you being one of them. And me being one of them, (laughs) with a man in her life who was a musician, a jazz musician, and a part-time peace officer, not to be confused with a police officer, but a peace officer who worked in the projects in America. So the projects were kind of our low-income housing Hmm. on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. A peace officer? What is that? I guess it's like uh, a glorified security guard in a neighborhood community. Okay. And so you're born into that environment. Were there any challenges that you went through at that time? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I think for me, spending part of my time with my white family and part of my time with my black family were very, very different experiences. Mm, And my mother and father separated very early. So my mother essentially became a single mother in my early, early youth. And then going back and visiting with my father was almost like a culture shock (laughs) for me. Whereas living with my mom, you know, my mom struggled during that period of time. She was working as a secretary and mm-hmm. uh, also had a part-time job as a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. And we lived on what's called food stamps. So I don't know about people here, but food stamps is that pretty colorful money that we used to use to buy certain items at the food store that were allowable things, bread, mm-hmm. milk, eggs, yeah. butter, things like that. So my mother definitely struggled raising us financially mm-hmm. as well as kind of socially being a little bit ostracized and different, raising two black children and her being a young white woman. And you mentioned that your mother was a hairdresser. Hair plays a role in your childhood. Tell us about that. Oh, dear, oh, dear, Eric. (laughs) You know, if you look at me now, I'm probably one of the happiest curly-headed girls in the world. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people compliment my hair these days. But when I was a child, one of the things my mom used to do, and I'm sure this was because, number one, it was the thing to do, and number two, it was much easier to manage. But my mom used to straighten my hair. My mom loved beauty, and at that time, that's what she felt was beautiful to have quaffed straight hair that had been chemically straightened with what we call lye uh, solution, which was really burning, like Mm. it hurt my scalp. And I had to sit under a hot dryer for an hour after that while she rolled and curled and styled my hair. And, you know, at the end of it, I'd come out looking like, you know, Diana Ross from the Supremes (laughs) of the 1960s or Jackie Kennedy, right, with that big bouffant. Can you imagine a little seven and eight-year-old girl (laughs) walking around with this big, beautiful bouffant hairstyle? Or at least, you know, that's what my mother felt. But Mm -hmm. for me, that was actually a real big identity crisis. I kept wondering why isn't my curly frizzy hair beautiful enough? Why does it have to be changed to look like this? Oh, and yeah. and who am I if I'm wearing that disguise all the time versus the little girl who just carefree runs around with her frizzy locks all over the place? Mm. So that was an issue for me when I was a little girl. So correct me if I'm wrong, but here your mother just meant it as a way of making you beautiful and and what she thought was beautiful, but unintentionally, she's sending the message that you're not good enough. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. There's no question about that. And I talk about that a lot in my book because I think we get conditioned at a very early age by people who we know care and love us. I mean, for example, teachers, you know, family members, parents, siblings, but they mold and shape your identity. And for me, I was confused. I was Mm. confused about my identity because I felt I wasn't being my authentic self. And that theme, unfortunately for me, just continues for decades to come. What else was going on inside of you at that time? 
Well, as I started to grow up, I found that um, I started to love music. I mean, music was mm-hmm. very much a part of my father's side of the family. My father mm-hmm. was a guitar player and a piano player. Mm-hmm. We used to sit around the kitchen table when I was very little, and he'd play songs like, uh, you know, Betcha by Golly Wow <laughs> by the Stylistics, and Are We Really Happy, you know, like George Benson's oh, Masquerade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd sit there and sing with him as he'd play these beautiful songs, so music became part of my soul at a very early age. I also started songwriting at a very early age, Mm -hmm. and I came to realize quite quickly that sometimes I couldn't say what I wanted to say, especially to my mom or to my dad. And if I put it in a song, though, it was okay. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, you know, if it was in a song, it wasn't really me. I was just singing a song, even though I was the one who wrote the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And what I came to learn through that process is that the music and the lyrics began to narrate the stories of my life. Mm -hmm. And my my half-brother, Kevin, my younger brother from my father's side of the family, would say to me, if I ever want to know what's going on in Sherry's head, all I have to do is listen to her latest song. <laughs> so that's beautiful. You had an outlet for your creativity. I did. And that outlet was very important for me, especially during my teenage years, mm-hmm. which were quite difficult for me. My mother married to an Irish Catholic gentleman, mm-hmm. and I was moved from my home in ninth grade, which was the beginning of senior school. So I was taken away from my environment that was close to my father, and now we we're moved to a different area. I was not happy about that, as you can imagine, you know. Well, being a teenage girl and having all these friends, which was my biggest support system, was my friends and activities in Mm -hmm. school that I did. Home life was not a happy place for me. And then being extricated from that environment and whisked Mm. off to a brand new place where I had to start all over again, the songs came fast and furious (laughs) during that period of my life. Very cathartic for you extremely cathartic Um, but what happened was I realized also that I didn't want to be poor so somewhere around that early adolescence period I came to this really crazy decision in my head which was that I didn't like the life that we were living. I didn't like that we were living in low-income housing. I didn't Mm -hmm. like that it seemed that my mother was always struggling. I didn't like that we had to use the paper, colorful money. Yeah, yeah, the food stamps you're referring to, which was the government assistance. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we had to use that to buy certain kinds of food. I didn't like any of that. And then when I moved to this new community with my now stepfather, we sort of elevated our socioeconomic status a little bit. And I was surrounded by people who lived in big homes, Mm -hmm. had parents who were doctors and lawyers. They were being driven to school in Mercedes and BMWs. Oh, quite a difference. They were wearing designer clothes. And you you like that better, huh? It's not that I liked it better, but it was just something that I looked at and I aspired to. And I was like, wow, you know, they look so happy. And their moms and dads are doctors and they take these beautiful vacations all over the world. And and here we were, you know, struggling to Mm, just make ends meet. And so I made this decision that, and honestly, this was an arbitrary decision. I made a decision that, well, if they have lawyers and doctors for moms and dads, that's what I've got to be. And Mm. since I didn't have any interest in reading law books, (laughs) but I loved science and math, I gravitated towards being a doctor. And I made that choice 
very, very, very early in my adolescence. Yeah, but not because you had some passion for medicine no. or helping people heal. It was no. strictly, if I'm understanding you correctly, it was strictly for financial reasons. It was wealth and worthiness. Hmm. I felt if I was a doctor, I would be respected. I would be someone who was valued for who I was because I had a title behind my name. Oh, and of okay. course, I would have the prestige of you know having that honorific in front of my name. Oh, it was right. very complicated for me. However, Eric, doing that, I have to say, it's kind of like the devil's choice, isn't it? <laughs> well, what do you mean by I that? Well, I mean, you can't serve God and money at the same time. Now, oh, that's I have true. some yeah. issues with that phrasing, but for me, I was choosing a path of wealth and prestige and significance when my heart and my authentic self was calling me to the music and to the creative side. And I absolutely denied that part of me for so many years on the pursuit of this other entity that I thought was going to bring me love and happiness. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Sherry Hall, who's the author of the book, Perfect Love, One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith, a musical memoir. As we're hearing, she grew up confused about her identity and searching for what would bring her lasting happiness. We'll hear more of Sherry's story when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're back with more of Sherry Hall sharing her life journey that started in Buffalo, New York. And she joins us today from her home on the Gold Coast. As we heard before the break, there was a kind of a civil war going on inside of her in her young adult years as she was struggling to decide whether she would follow her heart in creative pursuits or she would strive for the prestige and wealth associated with being a doctor. Now, here's more of Sherry chatting with Eric Scatterbo. No, 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 no. Yes, there was a civil war going on in my soul, mm. and it caused me to dive into a very, very deep, dark place during much of my early years in university and medical school, mm -hmm. uh, so much so that I found myself doing things to try to numb the pain. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine what that might include. It included the use of drugs. It included the use of a lot of alcohol. It included the use of finding what I felt was love in the arms mm -hmm. of strangers, mm -hmm. that physical love, and it's part of the title of the book, One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith. And when I say flesh, not only am I referring to the physical aspect of it, thinking and believing that the physical comfort was what I was defining as the love that I needed versus living in a flesh-filled world, right? A materialistic mm. world. So it, it's mm -hmm. all of that. 
and the journey to love being perfect love. And for me, that, of course, ends up being the perfect love that I find within myself and with God who is within me. And this is a journey that is all too common in today's society. Well, for all time, actually, that we have that decision to make in life. All of us, we can go for the material wealth or we can go for the deeper things in life, the spiritual. And that's kind of what you had to decide. The irony is that you're going for the the wealth and being a doctor while you're kind of barely getting through it, it sounds like, because you were having to self-medicate to get through it. Yes, but, but you were successful. You became a doctor. This is the truth, and I'm going to tell you how that happened because I couldn't have done it without a very dear friend of mine who was another doctor, another medical student. He actually lived in Amsterdam, but I met him in New York, and he came and he helped me one day, and he just stayed with me, and this is actually after I had a really traumatic experience in New York. I, I was at the point where I literally almost committed suicide. I just could not bear it anymore. That's only one of the many things I did that were completely self-destructive during mm. that time period. Um, but my friend came and stayed with me for a period of about three weeks, and he got me over the hump, so to speak. He just reaffirmed in me that I was worthy, that I did have something to contribute to the world, and I was also pretty darn smart. Um, well, you, you know, became a doctor. I, you had to have something going for you I, there. <laughs> you know, not only did I become a doctor, but Eric, I went to two of the finest universities in America. I went to yeah. Yale undergraduate and then to Columbia University for medical school, so I wasn't stupid. Yeah, well, how um, can you afford that? If you were just barely, getting I by. received a I received a lot of financial aid and student loans. Oh, okay. I borrowed yep. my way. I graduated with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. Another reason why money became even more important oh, yeah. than yeah. in my life. Yeah. I was kind of stuck in it. Then, even if I wanted to leave, I couldn't at that point. Oh right. Um, so I did. I got over the hump, and I sort of just made a decision. And another person, and you're going to love this little story, but another person who really had an impact on that decision to move forward and to try to be the best doctor that I could be was a young man named Jimmy. And Jimmy had been in theology school before he came to medical school. He was going to oh. become a priest. And Jimmy and I were in a little performance together the last day of medical school, the day before we all find out where we were going to go for our residencies and what specialty we were going to do. And at the end of that performance, Jimmy came up to me and he said, now, mind you, this is in a period of time when I thought about committing suicide, where mm. I did not want to live anymore. Mm. And Jimmy comes up to me and he says, Sherry, I know there's a lot of people who want to say something to you, but they're probably not going to. So I am. And he gave me a big hug and he said, I just want you to know, I would not have gotten through medical school without you here. You made this such a wonderful experience for us. Wow. Now, what I can say about that was that here I was all the time trying to find a way out of this life and trying to get yeah. away uh -huh. from everything that I was doing. And I had a different plan for my life, but little did I know or acknowledge that there was a much bigger plan and purpose for my being here, for my mm -hmm. existing on this earth, even if it was just to bring joy and light and comfort into the lives of others, even through my own struggle. Yeah. So even though you were barely getting by, you're miserable inside, but yet you were helping this person without even knowing it. 
Yes, well, not only him, but many of my medical school colleagues. I was the head of what we call the PNS club there, as in Physicians and Surgeons Club. Mm-hmm. And that club was all the extracurricular activities that medical students were able to engage in to kind of support their mental and psychological well being mm-hmm. while going through the rigors of medical school. And I was actually the president of that club. Oh, wow. So, you know, and that was another life saving thing for me, you know. Well, you but, have a bubbly personality, so I can see that. You were probably helping others, but you didn't even know it. You were probably just taking that for granted. No, that's right. But, you know, Eric, I was kind of leading a double life because on one side of it, I was the model medical student, right? Mm. I was studying hard. I was doing well. The nurses and doctors that were my superiors loved me as a student. I was the head of the PNS club and the activities club for the yeah. campus. Yeah. Yet I had this dark life that I was Mm. living that most people didn't know about. And that's what I go into Mm. in great detail in the book, because even now, as I reveal it, many of my medical school colleagues are probably going to read this book and say, I never knew Mm. the torture you were going through during those years. Mm. And where was God in your life at that point? You know, God has always been there in my Mm -hmm. life. I was raised in a Catholic school. I felt his presence at so many times. I felt like, how am I going to get through this? And then somehow I did. Even the fact that I miraculously made it through medical school, still alive. Mm -hmm. Well, if God didn't have his hand on that one, I don't know who did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He he was looking out for you even back then before you really knew him in a personal way. Yes, that is Mm -hmm. true. What I discovered, though, Eric, was the songs that I was writing. When I started to listen to and really pay attention to the lyrics of the songs, I realized that there was such a faith-based foundation Mm. to the words that I was writing I really was just ignoring it. I was Mm. putting it aside. I was like, there's no God. My life sucks. It's Mm. terrible. My life is terrible. I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a doctor, but now I'm stuck and I've made this Mm. commitment and there's all these expectations that have been put on me now, not only Mm. by myself, but my parents, by teachers. And you're in debt too. And now I'm over, well and truly over $150,000 in debt. Oh, my goodness. You know, like there there was no way out of this quagmire of despair for me. Yet, my music was the thing that very slowly came to bring God to the forefront Mm. of my life. And if I had to put it down to a single moment, it would be the day I reconnected with a beautiful man named Paul Gordon. Through the miracles of Facebook... (laughs) Oh, okay. So what year is this about? So Paul and I originally met in New York City in 1994 when I recorded a few demo songs. So so we we singer-songwriters, right? We record these demos that we like to farm out to other people thinking that, oh, if I get this in the hands of a record executive, maybe they'll put me on a label and make me famous, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I recorded a little demo while I was a fellow, which was my extra training in New York City to become a cardiac anesthesiologist or a cardiac anesthetist, as we say. Mm -hmm. And during that year, I met Paul Gordon, who was just a piano player in New York who actually played on my little demo. Jump forward about 15 years and we reconnected on Facebook through a mutual friend and he sent me a message saying, hey, are you the Sherry Hall that I met in New York? And I said, hey, are you the Paul Gordon who played <laughs> piano on my, my little demo? Hold on a second. He went on to fame, didn't he? Yes, he did. And so here's the story, right? Is that Paul Gordon in those 15 years 
became one of the most recognized musicians in Nashville and Los Angeles because he was the keyboard and guitar player for the B-52s. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if anybody's been to a wedding, they've probably danced to the Love Shack. And exactly. that's, that's him playing on that? Is that right? Yeah, Love Shack and Rock Lobster. Oh, okay. oh and, yeah, yeah. You know, he toured all around the world with the B-52s. And I mean, he played with many, many, many more musicians, including Natasha Bedingfield and Prince and the Goo Goo Dolls and Free wow. Radical, New yeah. Radicals. And I mean, the list goes on and on. But I reconnected with Paul Gordon and Paul listened to my music. And Paul said to me one night after listening to some scratchy little songs that I had put on my phone with piano and guitar and voice, and he intently listened to the words and the lyrics and the music, and he said to me, he said, Sherry, I love your music. I loved it back then, and I love it now, and I think you have a story that's worthy of sharing, and there's something that people should hear in your words and your music. Mm. And for me... It was the first time that anybody had truly seen me, seen the authentic Sherry, the Sherry that had been dying to be released to the world and mm. share the gifts that she was given from God. I mean, that's mm. where my gifts were. Not that I wasn't a gifted and talented doctor. Please don't get me wrong. Actually, there are, there are days when I loved being a doctor and I became a very, very good one. Mm. Um, but my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't passionate mm. about it. Mm. And I'd say pretty much most of the days of those 25 years as a career physician, I just wanted a different life. Okay. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for this first part of our conversation with Sherry Hall. Sherry, is it okay if we invite you to come back again next time to share more of your story? I'd absolutely love it, Eric. And there's oh so much to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm thinking about in listening to your story is that that one person in medical school said you made it all worthwhile, that you made him happy and you were in, in charge of the physician's group there that you were yes. talking about. So yes. that's kind of a preview of what comes later in your life, this whole idea of you bringing joy to other people and, of course, the yes. music as well. So that's just kind of a sneak peek of what's coming yeah. up next time. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lots to come. Open up your eyes. Seek and you will find. He's in your life even when you don't see it. Wherever you go, you know you're never well, we invite you to join us again next time for more of Sherry Hall's story when we'll hear how she finally finds true fulfilment and perfect love from her Heavenly Father. Once again, Sherry is the author of the book Perfect Love, One Woman's Journey from Flesh to Faith, a musical memoir. To find out more about her music and her book, you can go to her website. It's sherryhall.com. That's Sherry, S-H-A-R-I, Hall. Finally, we'll end today with one of my favourite verses from the book of Psalms, which is a good one to remember when striving for direction and fulfilment in life. It comes from chapter 37, verse 4, and it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, our hearts will find true peace and fulfilment when we put our faith and trust in Him and seek His will for our lives. God has uniquely wired each and every one of us and knows what will bring the most joy and fulfillment to our lives. So if you haven't yet, I would strongly encourage you to put your faith in God today. If you'd like to pray with someone about this, our prayer line is 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. 
That's one 772 936 And we'd love to pray with you on that number again, one 772 936 Well, until next time, when we'll hear part two of Sherry's fascinating story, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. What I am trying to get, I guess, the message, you know, in the book and now for me as a human being in this world, in this life, is just like, know who you are, love who you are, know that you're worthy and you have something to offer and to give to another soul who's in need and who's crying out for help. You may be that one person that brings another person closer to God. Sherry Hall was a successful doctor for 25 years, but always felt like she wasn't where she was supposed to be. Meanwhile, she had a deep yearning to express herself through music and creativity. We'll find out how Sherry finally finds true fulfilment next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 